Hello everyone and welcome to the latest installment of Borders Blatherings, our podcast where we shine a light on the curious, shadowy and often very magical history of the Scottish borderlands. I'm joined as ever by Mary Craig, author, historian and archivist. How are you today, Mary? I'm very well, thank you, Doug. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling pretty good today. Uh, slight health issues, but never mind. Oh <laughs> we'll soldier on. It's good to meet up with you again. Um, just a question. You know, the listeners will know we don't script this, so I'm going to start with a little observation mm-hmm. uh, to introduce today's topic. As I explore and wander around a region here looking for more interesting walks to take the dog Cassie on, I can't help but notice the large number of derelict and abandoned mill buildings in the area. Does this suggest that the heyday of textile manufacture in the borderlands is long over? Sadly, yes. Um, The great mills that closed the world are no more. We have a few mills left in the borders, but nothing to what we previously had. Nothing to the great looms that, that, as I say, closed the world, literally closed the world. So, yeah. That's, that's a really good observation and it's somewhat sad to see the fact that these buildings have been left. Um, some have been converted into other use. Some are still working mills, but many are looking pretty sad and pretty forlorn now. So, yeah. So that's what we can blather about today. Absolutely. The Scottish borders and textile manufacture. Yes. Um... Referring back to an earlier podcast where we talked about the treatment of the Irish navvies Mm -hmm. in the middle of the 19th century when the railways were were being built, Mm -hmm. is the the heyday of the mills, the rise of the mills connected directly to the introduction of the the railway network? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we know about, there's been weaving in Scotland, as there would be in many European countries for years, and we have actually quite a few notes in the the Kirk session records, of course, of Mm. people being admonished for weaving on the Sabbath in the sort of 17th (laughs) century. And then in the 18th century, you have the start of the mills coming together. You have the Manufacturers Association being formed in Galashiels. And you have all of these early entrepreneurs saying, right, instead of having we Jesse in one cottage and we Mary in another cottage on their hand looms, how about if I got a bigger loom and brought them together? And that was the start of the rise of the mills. But they didn't really take off until the railways came to the borders, which allowed them, of course, to get the the fantastic cloth that was being produced out to the markets, out with the borders area, up to Edinburgh, up to Glasgow, down to London and abroad. So, yeah, the railways were key in, in allowing the mills to flourish and really blossom in the border areas. I take the view that when when people who live outside Scotland think of textiles, they don't automatically think of the Scottish borderlands. They might well think of Harris Tweed. They might think of Donegal Tweed. Yeah. And they yeah. might look a little bit outside our, our region. Are you suggesting then that this really is the home this of is, textile this, manufacture? This is the home of ruling textiles. Um, cotton manufacture tended to be Glasgow and Paisley. And then, of course, you had the great jute mills up in Dundee. Yes. But for woolen woven cloth, good Scotch cloth, 
you come to the borders. You absolutely come to the borders. Even though what they were producing might be tartan plaid, which looks very odd in the borders and doesn't belong here. Or they might be <laughs> producing shepherd's checks, or they might be producing all these different sort of materials that looked so amazing and different, but it is all, it's all uh, good woolen borders cloth from good woolen border sheep. It's interesting that you mentioned tartan in association with the, the borders, because I personally don't associate the borders with tartan, per se. Well, I'm going to name and shame here. I'm sorry, it's Sir Walter Scott's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Georgie Porgy, King George, comes to Scotland and Walter Scott was put in charge of the visit. And of course, Walter Scott had a great romantic love of the Highlands. King Georgie Porgy didn't really know anything much about Scotland, but again, he had a bit of a love of the romantic Highlands. And of course, Walter Scott suggested that the king dress in tartan, which he did. Now, he didn't wear a kilt. He wore some sort of ridiculous skirt over a pair of pink stockings, and we won't quite go into that. But of course, once the king had worn this, all of the posh ladies and gentlemen of Edinburgh wanted to be dressed like the king, and they wanted to be dressed in tartan. Well, weavers up in the north were producing proper plaid for people that lived in the highlands. Yes. And so the borders mills went, okay, fine, we'll produce whatever you want. And they did by the thousand. And they still do produce a lot of tartan cloth is produced in the borders. Although the highland clans have got nothing to do with the borders. We have families in the borders, clans in the north. Yeah, my, my memory of when I first moved here was basically saying very little tartan, but saying a lot of rather, in my opinion, dull, staid check patterns throughout. Are these related to families? Yes and no. They originated um, for different families. But what happened was, after the First World War, um, when a lot of the estates were changing in the borders, what a lot of the estate managers did was they had particular checks so if you were the gilly if you were the 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 water bailey if you were you know the the shepherd if you were the gamekeeper, gamekeeper <laughs> thank you if you were the gamekeeper you would be dressed in a check for that particular estate and the different estates had different checks and the checks actually reflected the local estate so you might have a check that's got a particular pinky hue through it as it's coming through the heather or you might have somebody else that's got a particular blue and so if you see the checks next to each other, you can mm. see the differences and the nuances between them. Yeah. But if you're just seeing them at a difference, they do come across as a somewhat dull check. But they were there as working clothes for men that were working the land. So they're particular to the borders. Although the borders mills were producing all of those, they also produced tartan for the export market, mostly up to Edinburgh, but also abroad. Ah, right. So could we, we could call these estate checks, yes. in a sense, these patterns. Yes. That's the origin. Yes. That's the origin of Fascinating. Them, yeah. yeah. Would these be traditionally made from tweed? Would they be tweed-based? These are all um, woolen. They're all the material that comes from the borders is woolen. There's a few exceptions, but most of it is, is woolen. Tweed is a curious one. What do you mean by tweed? Doug. I'm not sure that I... I it, it fascinates me because we live right here in the Tweed Valley and the main river that runs through our region is the Tweed, the River Tweed, which mm -hmm. is famous for salmon and very many other things. I would imagine if I were to go on the internet, which I try and avoid doing regularly, 
that we might find a claim that the name Tweed is linked to the river Tweed, which flows through the Scottish borders. I'm not sure I could accept that. I suspect it comes more from the Scottish word Tweel, which would be the pronunciation of what listeners will know as Twill. This is a manufacturing process, in, in, in a sense. So what I mean by Tweed, I think, Mary, is the, 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 the world-renowned <laughs> Tweeds, like Harris Tweed from yeah. the Outer Hebrides yeah. and Donegal Tweed from, from Ireland. Yes, they're That's the traditional That's where I'm going. Tweeds. These are the yeah. big sellers, yeah. I guess. They're the traditional Tweeds. Whereas what is known as Borders Tweed is, well, we're not quite sure. There's two or three different ways in which it could have arisen. One of the most common stories is the fact that there was a black and white shepherd's check that had been manufactured in the borders mm -hmm. and was sent down to London. Uh, and, of course, it came down from a manufacturer, I think, from Selkirk, which, of course, lies on the River Tweed. And Tweel was written on the... Uh, on the packaging there, and it was misread by the London manufacturer, and it then became Tweed. And then, of course, folk in the borders went, okay, fine, that's a great marketing idea, we'll have Tweed. That's one of the stories, but nobody is 100% sure why Tweed in the borders is called Tweed. I'm going to go with that. You know, as a, as a language person, I can, I can see Tweel misunderstood, mis, mis, misread as mm -hmm. Tweed, mm -hmm. which then sticks is the classic Mondegreen. If you can bear with me, I'll get that into this podcast. You know, the, the, the story of the, the, um, the Bonnie Earl of Murray. Uh, they, they slayed uh, the Bonnie Earl of Murray and, the, and Lady Mondegreen. <laughs> Whoever Lady Mondegreen was laid him on, on the, green. the green. So I suggest that you're right when you, when you say that Tweel was perhaps misunderstood as Tweed. The association was made and it stuck and with it us. Stuck. Absolutely. When I think of Tweed, I think of the rich, gamekeepers, <laughs> fictional private detectives, <laughs> yep. gillies, as you mentioned, uh, and high-end fashion shows because it's still a, a very oh, popular absolutely. fabric. Absolutely, yes. You go to the, the catwalks of Milan and Paris and New York, Tweed is there, and Scottish Borders wool is there. Yes. yes absolutely. Yes, yes it's high-end fashion now. It's not, it's not got the breadth that it previously had where it clothed everybody from the rich to the poor from the posh to the peasant. Yeah. Now it's high-end fashion. Yeah. That, now, I, the, why this has happened would, would be interesting, but the fabric itself, because it was tough, and you talked about estates, you know, gamekeepers, gillies, and so on, and our weather yeah. <laughs> here in Scotland, there is a clear connection there. Yeah. yeah. I think. Okay. Um, you've taken a few minutes to blame Walter Scott, which I know we like to blame for much, but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll come back to him in a in a, in a in a in a in a later instalment of a Borders Blethering. Um, let's talk about the politics behind how the mills developed. the The Reform Act of eighteen thirty two. What impact did that have on textile manufacture or woolen manufacture? Here, it, it's an interesting one. The Reform Act in thirty two obviously increased the electorate by about one percent or yeah. something silly like that. But what it did was it gave workers 
an understanding of their own politics, an understanding of themselves as a class and as an entity. And in big cities like Glasgow and Paisley, where you've got the cotton mills, you get a lot of people starting to agitate in the mills because the mills was one of the few places where you got a lot of workers together. Mm -hmm. And the police at that time did not like people gathering together to discuss politics. Whereas if you've got a workforce of 20 or 50 or 100 gathered together to work then you can't really stop them talking. Yeah. And so that allowed people to talk about politics, it allowed um, chartists and people like that, reformers to start um, distributing pamphlets because weavers were... I mean, weaving is a technical skill. It's a highly skilled job and they were actually quite well paid, relatively speaking. And so often they were very literate and they could read pamphlets. Mm -hmm. And even if only one person could read the pamphlet, they could then tell everybody else what was in it. And so the mills start to become a hotbed of reform where people can come in and spread ideas. And that was fine in places like Glasgow and Paisley. And then they come down to the borders and you get stories of a known vagabond from Glasgow being thrown out <laughs> of a mill because he's been agitating. But people started to become aware of things and they started to become more political. Um, but it actually happened almost differently in the borders where you didn't have the strong sense of early trade unionism. You don't have a strong sense. The medieval guilds had become sort of comfortable drinking clubs for men. So you didn't have the same levels of agitation. And so you don't get a strong working class coming up. And you've only got a slight middle class coming up. You, you've got a real divide in the borders where you've got landed gentry, you've got the Dukes of Beclue, the Dukes of, yeah, of, yeah. of Roxburgh, things like that. And you've got peasant workers either as farm labourers or in the mills. You don't have a strong middle class. And so the Victorian paternalism that comes in lasts for an awful lot longer in the borders than it does elsewhere. So the Reform Act comes in, allows a few people to be agitators but they tend to get sacked very, very quickly. And because everybody knows everybody, you think, oh, well, I better keep my head down and just keep my job. So it changes matters in the mills, but not in the way, not hugely politically as you'd expect in the bigger cities. You don't get that same level of, of political engagement. You get more of a case of, oh, look what happens when you get involved in that. Let's actually just all keep our heads down. So it's I, yeah, it, that's fascinating because I have a sorry. I had he, he died some years ago. An old an old friend who I used to drink a beer with, and he would often reflect on what he saw as the good old days. He was a borderer, born and bred, and he would reflect on the good old days when everybody knew their place. Yeah, and that's yeah. what you're describing here. Yeah. But the reform act must come, Mary, as a threat to the very rich mill owners because they were employing hosts of child workers in very, very dangerous jobs now at that's, that time. That's where the, the Reform Act does make a huge difference because on the back of the Reform Act, you get men who are agitating for the vote, women who are agitating yep. for the vote, and they're turning around and saying, oh, and by the way, our children deserve an education. Now, if you push forward about 15 years, you get the Education Act coming in in 1847. But what you have is you have a series of acts and a series of, of pushes for these acts from, from the Reform Act onwards where children should not be working in the mills mm. for more than 12 hours. And then they go, oh, well, maybe 12 hours is too long. Okay, they shouldn't be working in the mills 
for longer than nine hours. They shouldn't be doing night shifts. They shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be doing that. They should be getting two hours of education on top of their shift. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm eight years old and I'm having to work a nine-hour shift, I don't know how much schooling's going in my head for the two hours on top of that because the kids had to do their work before they got their education and the work was physically arduous and unbelievably dangerous unbelievably dangerous i know we've all been there and we all thought oh we know about it yes the children had to do this and that and run and collect dust so the machines didn't get clogged there are stories of children losing fingers losing limbs girls at one point there was a huge issue over girls hair yeah because if the girls had long hair they could easily get scalped but at the time for a girl to cut her hair short was scandalous And so you have all of these things going on. You have young children working horrendous hours. You have mill owners who say things like, oh, no, 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 I don't have any children working on a Sunday um, to the inspectors. But of course, they've been given the nod that the inspector's coming down. So all the kids are hidden away in a back shed somewhere. So it took a long time for that to change. But the Reform Act gave working class people the sort of backbone to say no, we're not putting up with this and our children are not putting up with this. And by the later end of the 19th century, you've got children under 13 are not really working in the mills at all. So that, that really was that push to get children into education mm-hmm. and out of occupation. That, that, that is that's really interesting how, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a historian, but history fascinates me for these very examples you've just mentioned. It was scandalous that women had their hair cut. Short, but if you go to the Scottish Mining Museum up the road, you can see evidence of women from Eastern Europe coming to work as miners, who cut their hair short in order to look like men. Yes, to get a job in the in in the pits. Yeah. And mining is actually a very interesting one because mining, remember, was the last bastion of serfdom in Scotland. Yes, yes. And you actually have situations where you have women who would work in the mines and they would strip off because the work was so disgusting and dirty and filthy and all the rest of it. But miners were considered to be not quite respectable and Mm. not quite human. So a miner, a female miner could get away with an awful lot more than a female weaver could because they were dirty and therefore it didn't matter what they did. Whereas weavers were clean women and had to follow those middle class sensibilities of keeping your hair long and being demure. So miners are a, miners are a very interesting. Although we don't have any mines in the borders, they're just about you know just north of us in Midlothian. It's very interesting the interaction between miners when they came down to the borders. They were they were not really welcome for a long long time because they were thought to be dirty. They were thought to be almost not human in in some cases. So we can add Irish and miners. Oh yes, don't get me started. And we're going to be doing a podcast about the gypsies soon yeah. as well, so that can that can go in the long list of folk that ah, had a hard time yeah. in the borders. Maybe that's why I've found living here a challenge at times. <laughs> I would like to pick up on. Maybe I'm going off at a tangent here, but I was visiting you once in your the the archive down in the the village. And I came across the story of the local mill here in Stow, which of course is sadly long out of business, made uniforms and other equipment for the Confederate Army during the American Civil War. Absolutely. 
Would that be right? So let's talk a bit about international connections. A lot of the people, a lot of the Scots that moved to America, moved to the southern states. Yeah. And they were involved in the slave trade. And they were involved in all sorts of horrors over there. But because they were of Scottish descent, when the war broke out, the Confederate Army had high numbers of Scots in it. And they needed uniforms and they needed blankets for themselves and for their horses. And of course, they didn't have the... They didn't have the stores that the, the Northern Army had. And so what they did was they looked around where can we buy good Scots woolen cloth? Scotland. And they came across and a lot of mills in Scotland provided the Confederate Army with a lot of material, literally a lot of material. And of course, this was great. And so you have mill owners all over the place filling orders and ignoring the domestic market. Very mm. foolish because, of course, all that happened was the North blockaded the South and the market fell away. But after the Civil War, the sort of trade picked up a little bit because although they weren't supplying the army anymore, good woolen cloth from Scotland was highly prized. And this continued well into about the 1880s until the American government put tariffs on and that was when the trade fell away. But for a good long time, yes, I'm afraid we were on the wrong side of that fight. So that's what's going through my head as you you explain that. Did did the local mills here back the losing side for political reasons or it was simply the so-called free market at work? It was partly commercial, but it was partly also, and this is going to sound a little odd for those that are not of a Scottish or English descent, it was because it was perceived as yet again England picking on Scotland uh-huh. because we still had we still had the chip in the shoulder over the Highland clearances and because most English people had gone to the northern states and most Scottish people had come to the southern states... When the war broke out, the southern states were very good at propaganda and that's what they portrayed it to mm. for the Scots. There were men from the borders went to fight on oh, the yeah. Confederate side. Yeah. There were very few went to fight for the Union side. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting when you look at the American Civil War, the number of Scots who were actually involved in that. There's a lot of Scots involved in that. If there's a punch-up, we're there, yep. basically. Yeah. <laughs> well put, well put. I also have something in the back of my mind about Gandhi. Oh, yes. That I also picked up on my visit to the archive. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit, please? Okay, so Mahatma Gandhi is in India, obviously, and he's trying to politely persuade the British to please leave. Yeah. Because we've been there bullying everybody for ages. And Gandhi was a very intelligent man and there were 101 different issues happening in India at the time and he realised that he needed to have one issue that people could focus on, people could rally around. And he came across spinning cotton because we were at the ridiculous stage where after the slave trade had been abolished, um, Britain basically turned around to India and said, can you please start growing cotton for us? We'll pay you rotten prices, but would you please start doing Mm -hmm. that? So we sort of pushed and bullied the Indians into growing our cotton we bought it at a ridiculously low price. We then transported it all the way to places like Lancashire. We then spun it into cloth, which we then took back to India and sold to the Indians at a ridiculously high price. Well, Gandhi took one look at that, and I don't think he was a great environmentalist because it was too early, but he said, this is just stupid. This is just economically ridiculous, and the Indians were the losers. So what he said was, Every Indian person should have a spinning wheel. They should spin their own cotton and make their own clothes, which is why there's a spinning wheel in the centre of the Indian flag to this day. Yes. But Gandhi, as I say, he wasn't stupid. 
when he started to do that, when that picked up, when people thought that's a great idea, he realised that it would affect the cotton mill workers in Lancashire. And so in 1931, he came across and he visited them and he explained what they were doing. And going back to the Reform Act, of course, people in mills are very political and they instantly understood what he was doing and they realised the Indian workers were being paid a rotten wage and they, by this time, weren't being paid a great wage. So they supported Gandhi, much to the upset of the British government, because mm. the British government now had Indians in India saying, please leave, and cotton workers in Lancashire saying, please, please leave. leave. Yeah. And then, of course, once the cotton mills started on this, this spread to the woolen mills. So you have the mills and the borders also supporting people like Gandhi. Anybody that worked in a mill, whether it was weaving jute or cotton or wool, all said, this is unfair. This is absolutely unfair. And it really helped to push for Indian independence. Ah, that's, that, 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 is, that is fascinating. Yeah. Question for you. What the hell is the difference between a greasy derna and a clean derna? You know, I did work for uh, in the the HR department of uh, Pringle of Hoyk, the you know the world famous knitwear manufacturer for some years, and and I always toiled with the 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 hierarchy involved in uh, knitwear mm-hmm. manufacturer. Mm-hmm. But again, on my trip to the archive, we you you mentioned something about that. Maybe you could just. Say a few words about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the mills were a world unto themselves. You know, you had darners, you had greasy derners, you had clean derners, you had weavers, you had spinners, you had all sorts of different things. And there was a pecking order. And if you were a greasy derner, what you would do is that once the original wool had come in and it had been spun into yarn and it was being it was being woven into into uh, cloth, Wool is very greasy, it's very oily, obviously, because it's a natural product from the animal. And so you had to darn, the initial bolt of cloth would be darned whilst it was still in its greasy form. And then it gets washed through and then it comes back and it's reprocessed. And then you would darn it when it was clean, when all of the oil and the grease was out of it. And I remember speaking to an older lady and she said she was ever so proud of the fact that she was a clean derner. (laughs) And the dirty derners used to wear sort of of extra sleeves they would put on their arms to to protect themselves from the oil and the grease. And she was very much, oh yes, oh no, we didn't have lunch with them, of course. And so when the lunch hooter would go off, she said you would see everybody streaming out of the different sheds. But the greasy derners would not sit with the clean derners, thank you very much, you know. And so so yeah, it was very much a world unto itself. And yeah. and she remembers um one time she was out for dinner, this was years after she'd left the mill and she was sitting chatting to a lady who was sitting next to her, and it turns out that they had worked in exactly the same mill for exactly the same time for about forty years and had never met because one of them worked in a weaving shed and the other worked in a spinning shed. So it was very separate and and it's great that there is those those differences within the mill because of course coming from Glasgow and coming from a non-borders background I just think oh it's the mill and they make wool to find out that there were oh no there was a little bit of pecking order here and who was there and who was there and apparently for some of the girls if you had a boyfriend who had a an office job who might be a salesman or an accountant oh well that was it you know, the, you, you'd made it. You had absolutely made it. If your boyfriend wore a shirt and a tie, yeah. that, was, that was the yeah. best going. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, Mary, thanks. That's, that's, that's been fascinating. Now, can I just pick up on 
something you mentioned earlier in this instalment, which was your favourite Sir Walter Scott and all things tartan. Poor Sir Walter, yes. I don't want to kick him. Don't kick a good man when he's done. But um, maybe for our next podcast, may I make a suggestion that as this is the 250th anniversary of his birth, and this year, Abbotsford House, the world-famous home of Sir Walter Scott, are celebrating that, our next instalment could be about the good Sir Walter. Indeed. How do you feel about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's fascinating to discuss his part in making Scottish history. Yes. And that's an absolute, you know, a a minefield of exciting information there. So, yeah, yeah, I absolutely think Sir Walter needs an instalment from us. I think that's a great idea. Mary, thank you very much for all of that information today. It's been an education for me, that's for sure. (laughs) Okay. Bye, Doug. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.